questions that came up in my mind are these I'll just pose to you. How confident are you? And what is the basis of that confidence? I think sometimes we're on this, this tightrope and there's a danger of falling off into arrogant overconfidence and there's a danger of falling off into this kind of paralyzing lack of confidence. It's like, what is God's invitation in that? Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. Again, we could extrapolate that out. Some trust in our GPAs or job prospects or relationships or politics or fill in the blank. But the psalmist says, but we, we will trust in the Lord, right? Jeremiah 17, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in him. Philippians 1, 6, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It is God's work. He's the one who sees us. He's the one who pursues us. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who assures us. Our confidence is in His ability. Our confidence is in His faithfulness. Our confidence is in His timing. Our confidence is in His love. So what can separate us from the love of God? We are chosen, we are loved, we are confident in Him. Can we sing? What is true is that our confidence grows as our knowledge of God grows. Colossians 1.10 says, We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Growing in the knowledge of God. That is experiential knowledge. It's knowledge which hangs onto and leans into its object. 
So it's not just book knowledge, it's not just information. It is not, let me cram this for a test, kind of knowledge. It is deep, experiential, expanding knowledge that is relational. So what Jesus is after, what he's calling us into, is this progression, this growing, this deepening of confidence in him. The longer we walk with Christ, the more we pick up on his mannerisms and his movements and his words and his way. Each week, we are spending some time in the Gospels exploring the life of Jesus as he is on the way. And today, we're going to be in John chapter 9. So if you want to turn there in your Bible or in your phone or if you can look at the screen... It's a story of a blind man receiving sight. But wrapped up in the story is a bit of a parable of this contrast between seeing and not seeing, between a progression of faith-filled confidence and being stuck in self-promoting religion. And so here we go, John chapter 9. As Jesus Jesus was walking along as he was on the way. He saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sin or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. This is a man who had been blind since birth. The disciples had little to no compassion for this guy. They were theologically curious. In their minds, there was only one explanation for why this guy was blind, and it was either the sin of himself or the sin of his parents. That was as far as their theology would go. They're missing the point. And while it is true, according to Romans, that all of us, all the world, has sinned have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And while it is also true that there are specific times in Scripture where uh, the consequence of sin was sickness or suffering, that's not the norm of the whole narrative of why suffering and disease and death exist. That we live in a fallen world where people are sick and they are blind and they suffer, not as a consequence of their own sin, but as a consequence of the chaos that came with the collective disobedience of forsaking God by all of humanity, right? So we are complicit. But it's not this one-to-one, why is this man blind? It must be his sin. Though God doesn't cause pain and suffering, neither does he waste it. Jesus doesn't blame anybody here. He just offers grace. This moment, this blindness isn't for nothing, though. It has purpose that the work of God may be evident in his life. See, God can bring glory to himself through healing or through not healing, i.e., Paul's thorn in the flesh. Jesus understood suffering through this lens I read this by F.F. Bruce. He said, this doesn't mean that God deliberately caused a child to be born born blind in order that many years later, God's glory would be displayed by the removal of the blindness. 
That's not congruent with the nature of God. It also, I mean, it does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and others, seeing this work of God, might turn to the true light of the world. Verse 4, Jesus says, we must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent me. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. He had said that back in chapter 8 as well. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then, verse 6, he spit on the ground And he made mud with the saliva, and he spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus is talking about an urgency around his ministry. I am the light of the world. The light that exposes and judges and saves the world. And to illustrate, Jesus says, Go wash yourself. Go from blindness to seeing. Jesus takes the initiative. He makes some mud with his spit and he wipes it on the man's eyes. Why did he do that? Jesus healed a lot of blind people throughout the Gospels, but he would do it differently each time. In Mark chapter 10 is blind Bartimaeus. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus said, Rabbi, I want to see. He said, okay, go. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received sight, and he started following Jesus down the road. But two chapters earlier, at Bethsaida, some people brought a man who was blind to Jesus, and they begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes, no mud here, he put his hands on him. And Jesus said, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were open. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and Jesus sent him home. Here in John 9, with this blind man, Jesus spits on some dirt. He makes some mud. He wipes it on the man's eyes, and he sends him to the pool of Siloam. And Jesus is not just healing the man's blindness, but he is calling him into the essence of discipleship, which means to listen and to respond, to participate, to trust and obey. Sometimes we need this physical, visual, you know, demonstration to encourage our faith. Jesus worked through the man's obedience. In this passage, we're going to see a progression of a couple of things. One is a progression of this man born blind, this progression of faith, of seeing. He's going to move from, I don't know who did that, to straight out worship, and it will be pretty cool. The other is a progression of everyone else that is stuck in cycles of disbelief and in cycles of anger and of fear. So I want to point those out as we move along because the contrast is the contrast between this godly confidence and this self-absorption. 
Verse 8, are you with me? I can't see anything but your head. Okay, good. Verse 8, his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, nah, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yeah, I'm the one. And they asked, who healed you? What happened? And he told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go into the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and I washed and now I can see. Where is he now? I don't know. The first blind spot to the work of Jesus was familiarity and skepticism by the neighbors. Have you ever had people talk to you like you weren't there, but you actually were there? Has that ever happened in your family or with your friends? It's kind of frustrating, right? I have a feeling this guy had had a lifetime of that, overhearing people whisper or not whisper about this blind guy with a beggar cup cluttering up the street, giving our town a bad name. And the people are still talking about him as if he's not there. And they see that he is no longer begging. They see that he sees. And they say, hey, isn't this the same man who was blind? And some say, well, it looks like him, but it can't be. And he said, I am the man. I'm, I'm, the, I'm that guy. They said, who healed you? And he said, the man they call Jesus. And that is the blind man's first response about who Jesus is. I don't know exactly who he is. He'd overheard people talking about him, but he didn't personally know Jesus. He said, the man they called Jesus. And so verse 13, then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made mud and healed him, which is Jesus' favorite day for healing because the religious leaders hated it. Verse 15, the Pharisees asked the man all about it, and so he told them, he put the mud over my eyes. When I washed it away, I could see. He's saying his testimony over and over and some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. And others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? And there was this deep division of opinion among them. And the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. So the second blind spot to the work of Jesus was the disbelief and the prejudice of the Pharisees. Many had determined already that Jesus could not be holy, that Jesus could not be good because he had healed on the Sabbath. He had broken the rule. But others said, well, how can you ignore the miraculous signs? And so there was this division between the, between the religious leaders, between the Pharisees. And the blind man picked sides very quickly. They said, what do you think? And he said, well, he's a prophet, which is the second response by the blind man to who Jesus is. So he's gone from the, a man called Jesus to he's a prophet. And you can just see the confidence building in him because he has experienced Jesus. 
Verse 18, the Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called to his parents. They said, hey, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? I mean, they take an eye test, the whole deal. They say, okay, yeah, you're, you're, you're not blind anymore. But what if you really weren't blind from birth? Bring in the parents. Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? And his parents replied, and I just picture this kind of sheepish, you know, kind of, I don't know, New York accent, right? It's like, we know this is our son, and we know he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. And that's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. The third blind spot to the work of Jesus was the fear and the self-preservation by the parents. There was a fear behind them deferring to the son, this fear of being excommunicated. You see, Jesus was already the enemy, the main enemy of the religious elite. And so anyone who followed Jesus would be excommunicated from the synagogue. And if you were excommunicated, that meant more than you just couldn't come in and sing a song. That meant you would lose all of your business contacts and all of your social contacts. And you would be an outcast in your community where community was everything. We've had students in the past who came from a Muslim background, who became a Christian, knowing full well that that most likely meant an excommunication from their family and from their home community. It's costly. And you see the contrast between this blind man who is like going for broke and these parents who are so scared of losing their status, and their reputation. So they throw him under the bus. Verse 24, for the second time then they called the man who had been blind and he told them, God should get the glory for this. Or the NIV says, give glory to God because we know this man Jesus is a sinner. And the guy says, I don't know whether he's a sinner, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do? How did he heal you? Look, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Hmm. Do you want to become his disciples too? I love this guy. So they cursed him and they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. So they go back to this man, formerly known as the man born blind, and they say, give glory to God. And that wasn't, praise God for this amazing miracle. It was rather, before God, own up and admit the truth that we want confessed. This is a threat. There must be some other reason that you can now see. And the, the man born blind, this is his reaction. He says, hey, I don't, I don't know anything about this Jesus but here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I can see. I was blind, but now I see. That's it. 
they keep pressing. How did it happen? And he says, I told you already, you, don't, you didn't listen. And he's starting to get a little sarcastic. He says, why do you want to know? Do you want to be his disciple? And I think, you know, I just picture all of the other beggars just cracking up at their friend, right? And maybe they start joining in. Yeah, Pharisees, do you want to be his disciple too? And that just really ticked off the Pharisees, and they hurl insults, you know. Well, yeah, well, you, got, you still have mud on your face, and you are this fellow's disciple, and we're disciples of Moses, and we, we don't even know where this guy comes from. And so the third response by the blind man about what Jesus has done is, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And this man, who a few minutes ago was a nobody, he was obscure, he was a beggar, he was blind, he will never amount to anything, and now he is ever increasingly expanding his knowledge of who Jesus is, and he is growing in confidence and eloquence because he sees it like it is. Because for the first time in his life, he can not only see trees and sunsets, but he can see what is reality. And he just keeps pressing in. Verse 30, why, that's very strange. The man replied, he healed my eyes, and yet you don't even know where he comes from. And then he gives them a taste of their own medicine, i.e. theology. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. Look in the Old Testament, not one case if this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. To him, what was remarkable was not his own belief, but the unbelief of the Pharisees. It's so plain. How can you not see it? Verse 34, you were born a total sinner. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. It was the fourth blind spot of blinding fury. They were so blinded by their anger and their preconceived notion that Jesus could not be the Messiah, that they totally missed all of the scripture that they prided themselves of knowing. Like Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 42, which say very plainly that the Messiah will restore sight to the blind. Jesus was at the beginning of the story and then he's been absent, right? But now he comes and he finds the man and he says, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. Jesus says, you've seen him. He is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. This man who his whole life had been overlooked and continued to be overlooked by the townspeople and continued to be ridiculed by the clergy and even thrown under the bus by his parents, but in Jesus, he found light and he found life. Two interesting things. One is that Jesus looked for the man, not the other way around. 
that we are the lost ones. And secondly, Jesus invited the man to believe, to put his trust in Jesus. And I love this conversation. He says, I, I want to believe if you'll just point him to me, point him out to me. And Jesus says, you're looking at him. Can you imagine to see Jesus for the first time? When he had had a conversation before, he was still blind. This was pre-mud, pre-washing. He had just heard his voice, but now he sees his face. You're looking at him. Worship was the only appropriate response, which is the fourth and final response by the blind man. I believe and I worship. For the first time, he not only saw literal things with his eyes, but he saw the work of God in his life. The passage ends in verse, with verse 39. Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. And he, he said that to the blind man, but he said it loud enough for the Pharisees to hear. And they did. And they said, so are, are you saying that we're blind? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. You see, this is a, a parallel parable to the healing of the blind man, that the physical blindness is a bit of an illustration of the spiritual blindness of those who refuse Jesus. All the experts could see was the fact that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath, not the glory of God and his kingdom on display. Jesus says those who are spiritually, spiritually blind and admit it have an opportunity to see. But those who refuse to admit that they are spiritually blind will never know the light. Where's your confidence placed? It's this upside down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. Where the blind see and those who think that they can see exclusively Jesus calls them blind. I read this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness. All I know is I was blind and now I see. Ephesians 5, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. 
So where do you find yourself in this story? What has God been saying to you as we've been going through this in this passage? Let me ask you a couple more questions. What has been your own progression of faith? What have you seen of Jesus' power and presence in your life? This blind man was just relating in real time what he was experiencing in real time. What has been, what is presently your blindness to sight story? What's been the progression of confidence in the work of Jesus? Let me ask you this as well. Looking at what's going on in your life presently, where, where are the places where it's hardest to trust? To have faith in the power of God. I... Ironically, everyone in this story had blind spots except the blind man and Jesus. <laughs> the disciples' blind spot was a shallow theology, this kind of cause and effect, kind of a Judaism version of karma. Who sinned that he's blind? The Pharisees' blind spot was this religious rule-keeping and control. The parent's blind spot was fear and self-preservation of reputation and status. In the people, the crowd's blind spot was familiarity with the way things have been. And I think our blind spots represent one of those four, don't they? That sometimes our, our blind spot to what God is, is doing in our lives and in this world, sometimes our blind spot is just a shallow theology that we are, we're just barely scratching the surface, that we are trying to, to put God into the box of our own will in our own way instead of letting him break out the walls into what is true. Sometimes our blind spot is religious rule-keeping and control. And even thinking to the point where if I do this and this and this, then God has to make life go well for me. And so it really becomes a matter of our own achievement rather than a matter of his grace. Sometimes our blind spot is like the parents where it is a reputation and status a fear of losing that that keeps us silent. Sometimes it is a familiarity with the way things have always been. God is calling us into deeper waters, into deeper trust. So let me come back to this question. Where does your confidence lie? In whom does your confidence lie? Hebrews 4, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need.